So if you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series, and the series is entitled The Good Life. We're looking at this book in the New Testament. It's called 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter that was written by Paul, but he had some companions that were speaking into it, Silvanus and Timothy. And so Paul pens this letter to this church that he started, he planted years before, and Silvanus and Timothy with him. He goes to this city called Thessalonica. It's a city that's very hostile uh, to the Christian message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet they, they came there and they, they shared the gospel and they saw people come to faith and they rooted and they planted this church and then they were ripped from them. And so Paul is not able to go back and visit them. So he writes them this letter and, and so much of the letter is encouraging them but also challenging them to continue living the life that they have been living, the good life. See, this church, as we said last week, has become famous. They've been known in their city. They've become known in their region, in the whole world, in the known world, because these believers, these young believers in this young church have decided by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out their faith authentically. They lived out their faith at work, in their friend circles, with their families, when they went on business trips, and this church has become famous for the way that they have lived in authentic faith. And so Paul writes this letter to them to encourage them, but also to say continue forward because they are in a difficult city, a city that is preaching very different messages to them of what the good life looks like. And so I was curious this week. I was thinking, you know, what is the good life? So I decided to do a little search on the Internet, and naturally I started with Urban Dictionary. And Urban Dictionary said this, The good life, as mentioned by Kanye West, is about living drama and worry-free. Do your thing, be thankful for what you have, and take full advantage of everything you do have while still improving upon your situation. Simple. I was not satisfied, though. So I said, now I'm going to go to Forbes. So I went to Forbes. They've got to have the answer. I went to Forbes. Here's what Forbes said. Examine life. Engage life with vengeance. Always search for new pleasures and new desires to reach within your mind. Okay. So naturally, the next step was Tony Robbins. And Tony Robbins told me, progress equals happiness. You want to have the good life? You want to be happy? You just got to progress. So I was thinking of all these things, and I was like, where's the capstone to the good life? That's Woody Allen. And Woody Allen says, people say that money is not the key to happiness, but I always figured if you have enough money, you can have a key made. (laughs) Perfect. Beautiful. You know, these these quotes that are from different figures that you recognize, celebrities and motivational speakers, there's a lot of truth in this. There's some good things here that, you know, that there's progress and progress is a good thing and and that there's potential that you have. You've been given certain gifts and, and talents and to kind of tap into that and to be grateful and, and to learn how to, to move through worry and move past worry. But the, the reality is these things that are encapsulated in these little quotes, they don't provide the good life. You may think they do, but they don't. If you try to examine and just live life with vengeance, you're not going to find the good life. You know, what's interesting about all these quotes, except for Woody Allen, is that they all come from a a philosophy and a belief system that's known as Stoicism. They take parts of that. 
The Stoic philosophy has undergoing a resurgence in our culture. All of these things come from that, the idea of just be grateful, think positively, figure out what your potential is, tap into your potential, define what your truth is, and then progress towards your truth, and that is the good life. You define your happiness, and then you run towards it, and you let worry and drama just brush past you, and you're going to find the good life. It was very interesting is that this philosophy, Stoicism, that's undergoing a resurgence in our culture, was very prevalent in the first century in Thessalonica. This was one of the main philosophies of the city. Stoicism was kind of founded and launched just a few centuries before, and it's really taken root at this time. So the Thessalonian Christians in this young church that are being challenged to continue to live the life that they've been called to, a life worthy of God, a life that is the good life as defined by God are constantly hearing the same type of temptations and challenges from culture that we are. They're being told this. The good life is not living a life worthy of God. The good life is living a life worthy of your potential. It is living your best life. You define what is good, what matters, what is your truth, and then you run towards that. As long as you're unlocking your potential, you want to find the good life, it's hidden within you. It's hidden within your mind, within your heart. you got to access it, and once you access it, you work towards it, and you will find the good life. As you can imagine, Paul has something to say about this, and so in chapter 2, he begins to dissect this because he knows the situation that these young Christians that are becoming known for how they're living their faith, what they're sitting in. They're sitting in this tension and this temptation where they're remembering the gospel and they're remembering what the gospel says about how they are to live, but he knows they're living in a culture that preaches a very different message. So he wants to encourage them and challenge them to continue. And he starts in the very first verse. He says this, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. So he starts here in chapter 2, and he wants them to remember how they arrived to Thessalonica, what they said, and what their actions were like, because he's going to differentiate himself from the philosophers of their day, from the Stoic philosophers and all the other people preaching messages that claim to have wisdom and truth. He wants to differentiate himself. He says, remember, when we came to Thessalonica, it was not in vain, meaning it wasn't just the next city on our stop. There was a lot of meaning and intention behind our coming to you. In verse 2, he says, just so you know and you remember, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Right before Paul and Silvanus and Timothy arrive in Thessalonica, Paul is in Philippi. And in Philippi, he is falsely accused, he's held without trial, he's stripped naked, he's beaten with rods that are tied together, and then he's imprisoned. And immediately after this, he leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica. And so he's saying to them, remember, we came to you just after that experience. We didn't come to you in vain. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't just the next stop. In fact, why would we go to Thessalonica, a city that is hostile to the message that we're preaching? Surely a place where we're probably going to be persecuted again. Why would we go there right after we've experienced that? We probably would have taken a break. If we were in it for ourselves and not in it for the gospel of God, we would have taken a break. Or maybe just never come. 
but we didn't come to you in vain. Here was our motivation, verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Our reason for coming is not any attempt to deceive or error or impurity, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We came to you because it was our calling that was given to us by God. We have been entrusted with the gospel. And Paul's specific calling, his specific calling along with his companions is to go from city to city to town to town and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all the people that they come in contact with and to plant churches so that the gospel can go forth all throughout the known world. This is his specific calling that he has received from God as he's come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, we did not come to you for anything We weren't asking anything of you. We weren't in it for fame and fortune and personal glory like all the other philosophers of the city. Actually, we came to you simply because we've been entrusted with the gospel and there was no option. This was our calling. And he says, remember how we arrived when we came to you. Verses 5 and 6, he says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He's saying, think back when we arrived. I'm telling you that we arrived and we came to you with meaning and intention because the gospel has been entrusted to us. And when the gospel has been entrusted with you, you live in response of that and you want to share that with other people. And this is our calling. We didn't make demands upon you. And when we arrived, We didn't use words of flattery. So this would have been a fear of the Thessalonians because the philosophers were known, the people that had wisdom, people that had truth and had written a bunch of books about it and contained, said to contain what the good life looks like. They would have arrived in the city and used words of flattery. What what that means is they would have been great communicators, very slick in the way that they spoke It would have been very attractive what they were saying, but their motivation was to manipulate people by giving false praise and insincere words so that they might align in their camp so that the philosophers could suck power from them. Their intention and their motivation was to get power, to manipulate people through words of flattery and slick communication tactics and false praise, where you felt like they really liked you, and they really cared for you, and they really truly had wisdom, but they were simply just putting on a mask. He says, we didn't come like that. We were authentic. We are using slick words, words of flattery, and nor did we have a pretext for greed, which would have been a major fear because Thessalonica was an affluent city. We said it's a lot like Miami, a lot of wealth, And a lot of people that were in the church and people that had come to faith were themselves wealthy. And one of the fears, because it was seen throughout the city, is that philosophers that had truth and wisdom would come in and they'd look for those that are wealthy. And when they were able to manipulate and pull people into their camp through words of flattery and false praise, they would single out and look for the people that had money and then they would align themselves with them so that they might take their money to support their lifestyle. Because they wanted to live a lifestyle that was lavish and exuberant. And he's saying, we didn't come to you like that. We're making demands upon you, even though we're apostles 
of the church. We didn't make demands upon you. We weren't in it for fame. We weren't in it for fortune. We were not in it for personal glory at all. We didn't have a mask on. But remember what we were like. In verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The correct translation here with the word gentle is actually infants. You can kind of see now why they translate it gentle because it sounds weird when you read it, but we were infants among you. You're like, what? What What does that mean? What does that mean? But I think Paul's words here are actually very intentional. He's saying we were infants among you, meaning we didn't throw our weight around. We arrived humbly, almost weak, not just simply gentle. Though we're apostles, we arrived like infants, not leveling demands upon you, not throwing our weight around, not acting like we're above you because we're going to share with you the truth and the good news. No, like infants. And then he says, and we're like, we were like mothers who care for their own children, nursing mothers who care for their own children. This would have been really a striking sentence because in this culture, women, it was very common for women to, to have a child, to give birth, and immediately they would have contracted a wet nurse that would take the child and would feed the child and care for the child and educate the child and, and develop the child spiritually through their whole lives, would act like a mother for the child. So there was a wet nurse who was contracted from birth who would care for the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of the child until they became an adult and went off on their own. And Paul is saying, we are not like wet nurses. We weren't contracted. We're not hired help. We're not in it for some kind of payday or for some kind of bonus at the end. We're like a, we were like a nursing mother with you, meaning we care for you. You are our family. You are so dear to us. We, we were with you, not separate from you. Like a, like a mother who's caring for her own child. In verse 8, he qualifies that and he continues. He says, we're so affectionately desirous of you that we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He's saying, when we came and we began to speak with you and tell you about Jesus Christ and the good news of his life and his death and his resurrection, you were so dear to us and you were like family, you were dear friends that we didn't just tell you a message and then leave. We stayed with you. You became friends. You're our family. We love you. And though we had to leave abruptly because of persecution, it doesn't change the fact that we're not hired help. We didn't have a mask on. We weren't in it for fame. We weren't in it for fortune. We weren't in it for any kind of personal glory. We came because we've been entrusted with the gospel, and we love you. Paul is saying, he's differentiating himself, and he gives us one very specific example. He says, do you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil? We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians tells the church this. He says, church, your responsibility is to support and maintain the lifestyle and the livelihood of your pastoral leadership. But when Paul comes to this church in Thessalonica, that is a church that has wealthy people in it, 
as it's getting formed, but some that are very, very poor. And even those that are doing well financially are, are going to begin to struggle because they're living out their faith in the city. And so there's business deals that aren't going through anymore. There are promotions that are being lost. There are people that don't want to associate with them because they're not following the crowd. And they believe something different. And they, they believe and identify with a good life and in a different way. And so Paul says, remember when we came, we realized that the church was in a fragile state. And so we did not ask you to support us at the beginning. Instead, we worked as tent makers. We would labor day and night so that you had every opportunity as a church to form together and to grow together. He's really wanting them to see that he did not come just as another checklist on their item to-do list as apostles. They weren't in it for fame. They weren't in it for fortune. They weren't in it for personal glory. There were no words of flattery. They didn't pretend to like them and then just leave when they were done. No, they are their friends. They're their family. They love them. They care for them. And then he says in verse 10 through 12, you are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. And here it is. Here's the crux of it. To walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, remember, we weren't only like a mother who's nursing her own child. We weren't only like infants but we were also like a father. We encouraged you and we exhorted you and we charged you to continue to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is, in fact, the good life. You see, he's writing this because he knows what they're experiencing. They've been living this way. They've, they've come to believe that a life that is actually good is a life that is lived seeking to give God glory. It is a life worthy of God that he defines, and yet they're living in a city that is preaching a very different message, many different messages. And there's a constant temptation to forsake that and to run to something different. And they're hearing constantly, because Paul's not there, they're hearing constantly all these other philosophers in the city that are telling them, don't listen to that. The good life is unlocking your potential. The good life is however you define it. You can choose it for yourself. Run after it. Just be thankful, think positive, grow, progress. You're going to be happy. You're going to experience the good life. Trust us, follow us. He's saying, do you see what those people are like? They're in it for themselves. They're in it for fame and for fortune and for personal glory. That's not what we were in it for. We were in it because we want you to really come to know the gospel we want you to see it as true and as transformative. He's reminding them of these things. You know, this city, as we said last week, is a pluralistic city. Very, very similar to our city. And here was the, the cultural narrative, which was faith is something that you can define for yourself. It's kind of choose your own adventure. You can kind of create your own religion. You can create your own spirituality. You can choose which gods you want to worship. You can choose which philosophical systems you want to align yourself to. You can create your own belief system. Whatever you want to do, go for it. To find the good life for yourself and what you believe in, you'll run after it. 
It's a city full of idols. And we said that a city full of idols isn't like we imagine. Sometimes we think it just means that people have little statues in their house. Maybe some of them did, but it was a city full of all these different temples and all these different ways of thinking. And if you followed certain deities and you chose to include those in your life, it would have demands upon your life. It would alter the way that you lived, what you defined as good. So for instance, if you followed Dionysus, you would define the good life as a life of partying and a life of drinking because Dionysus is the god of wine. If you aligned yourself with Aphrodite, then you would see the good life as being sexually free and having sex with whoever you want, when you want, doing what you want with your body in any way. If you followed Apollo, who was the god of, let me share this with you, music, poetry, medicine, and archery, which is kind of like the god of like a primetime TV show on NBC with like a really handsome doctor with like a laid-back personality who shoots archery for fun on the weekends and also is like a romantic that plays jazz music and writes poetry to the woman he loves, right? If you followed Apollo, then that's what you're trying to do. Some of you in medical school, you know, don't follow Apollo. See, depending on the kind of gods that you you brought into your life and the philosophical systems that you kind of put before yourself and however you created what you defined as the good life, you'd then pursue that. And you'd believe that that was the way to happiness and joy and peace and hope and purpose and meaning. It was the good life. Paul's saying, don't fall into that. Remember what we modeled what we said and how we acted, the good life is a life that is living, lived worthy of the calling that God has given you. It is a life as God defines it. It is a life worthy of God. Not worthy of your potential or worthy of what you deem appropriate and right. You see, when you you think about the temptation of their city, and what was preached in their culture, that you should be seeking fame and fortune and personal glory as the good life, as the, philosoph- the philosophers of their city modeled. You may think to yourself, I'm not really like tempted by that. Even though it seems like everyone in our culture is trying to be famous through YouTube and social media, you're like, I'm not really about being famous because I want to be able to like go get a coffee without paparazzi. Like, I'm, I like my privacy. I'm not about being famous. I mean, fortune, that sounds kind of nice, but I'm okay having just like a comfortable life. You may think to yourself, I kind of have my life outlined and it's, it's average, you know, comfortable, some nice things here and there. So I'm not really tempted by that. But see, that last one is a seductive temptation, which is personal glory. See, when you allow personal glory to be the thing that you chase after for the good life, you begin to say that your dreams and your desires are the most important thing in your life. Your dreams and your desires are the things that drive the car of your life. And as long as you're achieving your goals, you're fulfilling your dreams, and you're taking hold of the desires that you think will make you happy, then you'll be living the good life. And Paul is saying, don't fall into that. It's not going to give you the good life. Momentary happiness, maybe. 
but not the good life, not a life of purpose and joy and peace and hope and meaning. And you think to yourself, how were they living this way? This young church in Thessalonica that had become famous in their city and the region, the known world, they were bringing their faith into their friend circles. They were bringing their faith into their family, into their work, on business trips, so much so that people all over the known world knew about this church and the way that they were living authentically for a gospel movement. Why would Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, who were great communicators, and had every opportunity to gain fame and to gain fortune and to live for personal glory, yet they don't. How were they able to live that way? And I think it's because they understood a doctrine that we're missing culturally, that we soften, we make it seem a little bit more culturally palatable. Paul talks about it all the time, and it's modeled in the Thessalonian church. And when I tell you what the doctrine is, you're going to, unless it's on the screen, yeah, don't put it up yet. If, if, when I tell you what the doctrine is, some of you are going to shift in your seat. But now that I said that, you're going to be really nervous to shift in your seat. So none of you are going to move. Some of you are going to scrunch your face like, I don't, I mean, come on. Some of you are going to roll your eyes or want to because you're going to think I'm looking at you. No one ever knows who I'm looking at. And some of you are going to nod your head in agreement. But maybe you have a very surface level understanding of this doctrine, which is so important. It's a core doctrine of the Christian faith. And it's the doctrine of sin. Who's excited? Like, hey, did you see how quiet it was? It's like, oh, great. This, I, I came to church on a Sunday night. We're going to talk about sin. See, that's a difficult doctrine. It's a difficult thing to believe. Here's what it is. Very simply, the doctrine of sin says this. You and me are fundamentally flawed and broken from birth. And God is fundamentally unhappy about our brokenness. When you hear that, you're like, ah, <laughs> I don't know about that. That is not something that we value or believe culturally. When you hear that, you think, that doesn't sound like the doctrine of sin. That sounds like the doctrine of repression. The doctrine of repressing your urges and your desires, for some reason, they're supposed to be bad. See, we say that the good life is figuring out what your urges or your desires are and running after them headstrong. So it feels like the doctrine of repression, or maybe it feels like the doctrine of self-hate, to look at yourself and to say that you're broken and you're flawed, then you're going to hate yourself. And we want to say that you, you can define your happiness. You are just perfect the way you are. There's no brokenness in you. Or it sounds like the doctrine of discrimination where you think to yourself, man, that sounds like you can discriminate against people by saying, well, they're too sinful. They're living in sin, so I'm not going to associate with them and I'm going to treat them and judge them a certain way. The doctrine of sin is none of these things. It's not a doctrine of repression. Instead, it's a doctrine of recognition of what is actually good. It's not a doctrine of self-hate, rather it's a doctrine of humility, seeing yourself for who you really are. And it's not a doctrine of discrimination, it's quite the opposite. It's actually a doctrine of understanding and of forgiveness and of love because you realize we're all in the same boat. We are all in the same boat. But when we hear that idea, the doctrine of sin, it really doesn't sit with us because here's what we want to believe. We want to believe that we are all good until we aren't. 
And the reason that we're not good or the reason that we're broken or we have flaws is because someone or something else has caused it. Some system, some person has messed up the perfection that is inside of me. And when you believe this, that you're all good until you aren't, then you begin to believe that the good life is fixing yourself because you believe yourself to have the ability to do so. Because if you were all good at one point, then you can work your way back to being all good. And the doctrine of sin says, no, you are fundamentally flawed. And the reason I bring this up is there's two really dangerous things that happen when you don't believe in the doctrine of sin in its truth and in its essence. One, you'll never come to faith in Jesus Christ and really give yourself before him. You won't come to find his grace and his love and his forgiveness. Why? Because you can't be saved from something you don't think is a big deal. If you don't think your sin is a big deal and you don't think you're broken and you need healing and you're incapable of fixing yourself, then you're never going to run to Jesus for healing, for forgiveness. And secondly, you'll never live a life worthy of God. Why? Because why would you go to God for what he defines as a good life when you believe that you're capable of finding it yourself, of fixing your problems. You'll bring God into the mix in some places, but ultimately, you're going to live a life worthy of your potential and fixing the brokenness inside of yourself. And so the question is, what is sin? And when we, we think of sin, we typically think of the acts that we commit that we deem sinful that are, we would say, are wrong and evil, things like adultery and embezzling money and physical and emotional abuse and lying to get your way. These things are certainly sin, but they're acts of sin. They're not the essence of sin. Here's what sin is. Sin is a system. It is a system that cannot be fixed. It is a condition under which we live. Sin is like this. Raise your hand if you've been snorkeling or scuba diving. Raise your hand. If you never have and you live in Miami, like go to a pool. Like just go to a pool. You got to try it. It's really cool. Throw some like little fish on the bottom that the kids do, you know, and you can pretend. If you've been snorkeling or scuba diving before, you know one of the most frustrating things is when your mask gets fogged up, right? So you go out, you put the mask on, you jump into the water and it fogs up. And so you get up on the side of the boat, you go to the beach and someone somewhere told you to spit into the mask. So you spit in the mask and you rub it around. You're like, I don't know why this is going to work, but I'm going to try it. So you put it back on and you go into the water and it fogs up again. So you get out of the water and then someone has it like special liquid. You know, like some people that are like real serious about scuba diving, they have this liquid like, oh, I got you. And they squeeze it in there and you rub it around. You put it back on, you go in the water, it fogs up again. This is what sin is like. No matter what you do, it's always going to fog. You can't do anything to fix it. You can't, there's no tactic. You can't spit in it. You can't get some special treatment. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, you're never going to fix the system of sin that affects you. You can't fix it. It is the system beneath every system. We look at the brokenness in our world and we say, why? Why is education broken? Why are politics and government broken? Why are relationships so broken? Guess what? There's a system beneath it and it's called sin and we can't fix it. It's who we are. It's the condition in, what, in which we live. But we don't want to believe that because we want to be optimistic about human nature. We want to believe ourselves to be all good 
until we aren't. And I think one of the reasons that we've maybe lost a real deep understanding and conviction of sin is because we've rebranded it. You see, there's some, some very basic things that reveal glitches in our system. They're very basic experiences and emotions that we all have that traditionally speaking have revealed to God's people and to people in general that they're broken and they're flawed. And there are things like anxiety and depression and guilt and shame and fear and a heavy conscience. But we've rebranded those things. And we've given ourselves, at least we believe, the ability to control them and to fix them. So we believe that anxiety and depression can be fixed through medication. We believe that guilt and shame can be fixed through practicing mindfulness. We believe that fear can be fixed through positive thinking. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that these things are bad at all. In fact, I actually believe that when necessary and appropriate, these different type of therapeutic measures, whether it's medication or practicing mindfulness or positive thinking, are very helpful. In fact, I believe that these things are gifts that a merciful God has given us to deal with a system of sin, to cope. It's God's grace to us for those that really struggle with these things. But we've rebranded them to believe that some treatment or something can fix the fundamental flaw that's within us. And we can't. You see, we should look at those things and say, I'm broken. There may be things that help, that's God's grace to me, that are his gifts, but I am fundamentally broken. I'm fundamentally flawed. See, the reason I bring this up is because you cannot live a life worthy of God and therefore find and discover and enjoy the good life unless you believe that God has it for you. That he is actually the author of all things good. That the life that he has is actually a life of healing and a life of purpose, and a life of beauty, and a life that is good, and that he's capable of fixing and healing the fundamental flaws in your heart and your mind. You won't ever find it unless you believe that you are sinful, that you really do need saving, and deliverance, and healing. You see, I think Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy and the Thessalonian believers and Christians, they really believed this. They knew this. Paul all the time says that he's the worst of all sinners. He understood who he is in his core, that he's broken, that he doesn't do what he should do. And sometimes he does what he knows he shouldn't do. This is us. So it... it it created him a desire as well as those in this church to constantly run to Jesus for healing and for direction for what is good in life. Jesus has this very important and valuable statement where he says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, if you don't see yourself as sick, you're never going to go to Jesus as your physician. 
You see, when you're sick, when you're severely sick and you can't do anything to fix it, you have no medicine in the medicine cabinet that's going to heal you. There's nothing you can do to get better. What do you do? You go to the doctor and when you go to the doctor, you say, doctor, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I want to be healed. And you place your life in the doctor's hands. And when the doctor brings healing, you have two responses. First, you look to the doctor and you say, thank you. I couldn't have fixed myself. Thank you for healing me. And then you say this, what's next? What, do I have to eat different now? What's my diet? Do I need to start exercising? What do I need to avoid? What do I need to begin to do? Because you've given me a new life. You've brought healing. And now I want to live in that new life. You see, when you believe that you are fundamentally flawed, that you are sinful, and you can't do anything to fix yourself, and you realize the glitches in your system through things like guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and, and a weight upon your conscience, when you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I, I believe in who you are. I believe that you gave your life for me that you died for my sins, that you were buried in the grave and you came forth victorious on the third day. When you come to him, you say, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I can't fix myself, but I'm asking for healing. You find grace and you find love and you find forgiveness and you find a God who is affectionately desirous of you. A God who came in the form of a man in Jesus Christ and laid down his life for you. And when you receive that, you say thank you because you receive something that you could never earn or deserve or create on your own. And then you look to Jesus and you say, what's next? How do I live now? What do I avoid? What do I do? How do I live in this new life that you have given me? Francis Chan, who is an author and pastor, he has this great quote. He says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. You see, the good life is running to Jesus each and every day and thanking him for the reality of your healing because you're sinful and yet you've been loved and forgiven. You've been given a new name. You've been given a new life. And when you run to Jesus as your great physician, you say, what next? What does it look like for me to live in this new life with you? Let's pray.